The Village Voice calls Summer 1993 an extraordinary and beautiful work. Spain's official 2018 Oscar entry and a New York Times critic's pick, Carla Simone's coming-of-age drama, Summer 1993, is now playing exclusively at the Film Society of Lincoln Center, presented by Oscilloscope Laboratories. Hello and welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. My name is Violet Luca, and I'm the digital producer. After 11 episodes of can coverage, we're taking you to a very different film festival this week. At the River Run International Film Festival in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, Michael Koreski, director of editorial and creative strategy at the Film Society of Lincoln Center, moderated a panel on writing queer film criticism. Michael was joined by Kay Austin Collins, critic at Vanity Fair, and Fariha Zaman, filmmaker and critic. Their conversation ranges from questions of identification, the absence of sexuality in Hollywood films, representation, and more. I'm going to set it up a little bit here and let, let Michael kind of outlay his framework for the conversation a little bit more. But uh, this is a very cool thing. Um, Michael Koreski on the far left is the editorial director for the Film Society of Lincoln Center and also a writer for Film Comment. It's on our advisory board, as is Fariha. Been coming down for seven or eight years now, and um, now that he's at Film Comment, just wanted to build that kind of relationship and uh, kind of collaborate on a program this year. Um, so we're doing two films on 35 out of the archives at the School of the Arts related to queer cinema. We just did Orlando. Were any of you at that? Great. Tomorrow, beautiful thing uh, at I think 1:30 or 2 is the second component of Film Comment presents. But yeah, it's been a cool uh, collaborative curation between Michael and I this year, and um, he's now got a bi-weekly column that's on Film Comment's website called Queer and Now and Then, sort of revisiting and charting the progress of queer or queer-adjacent films throughout the years. So that's the setup for this conversation uh, about kind of writing as a gay film critic, and I'm gonna let Michael introduce the rest of the panel that he put together um, and take it away. Thank you very much for the intro. I've been coming here for many years. I think this is a terrific festival. I'm very excited to be able to um, talk about these particular topics today and just kind of share some ideas around queer cinema. And um, to help me do that, um, I wanted to introduce my incredible panelists. <laughs> um, and they'll be able to introduce themselves also in a second, but if you'll allow me to do my best. Um, um, this is Free Hazaman. I work at a company called Field of Vision also that commissions and publishes short documentaries, so I also enjoy um, working with other people in their films. And you've written for so many different places, including Film Comment, but so many different places that it's, it's almost too much for me to remember. <laughs> yeah, I still, um, I still write. Um, but there was a period of like six years when I was primarily a, a film critic. Um, so when people said, who do you write for? I said, whoever will pay me. And I feel good about working with them. So it was, yeah, a, a wide range. But I actually um, started writing at Reverse Shop, which Michael and Jeff, who's here, uh, co-founded. And that was my big break. I suppose. But, <laughs> um, and she's, a, she's a brilliant filmmaker. And um, actually, you have a short in the festival this year, a documentary short. Yes. Uh, it's called Nobody Loves Me. Free as the co-director, along with uh, Jeff, who's here, of this really brilliant documentary called Remote Area Medical, which is about a pop-up healthcare clinic in Kentucky? Tennessee. Tennessee. Yeah. Um, and you can see that on Netflix. It's you no could. longer on Netflix streaming. We just retired. So, so oh. modern film viewing. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I think it's on iTunes and Amazon. And that, and won, then... and that won an award here at River Run a few years ago. It's um, a brilliant film. Okay, and then <laughs> over here we have, I'm going to say it, and you're going to be extremely embarrassed, uh, one of the best 
critics working today and one of the, I think, most increasingly popular and important critics working today. This is Kay Austin Collins. Um, I'm going to be calling him Cameron during this because that's, that's, what, that's what the kid is. <laughs> um, and for the past uh, two and a half years, you were the, the lead film critic for The Ringer. Um, and just as of this past month, you have just been hired as the critic for Vanity Fair. So that's very exciting, and we're all excited about that. So um, welcome to both of you. I, the first question, I guess, which sort of will tie into your biographies and talking about how you came to writing, I just was curious, in your identities as queer critics, because this is something I think about a lot, mm -hmm. what is the first film or films or period of life where you started to first kind of, where you saw something on the screen and you started to identify with that and you realized that this was important to your identity? I, we talked about this question a little bit before because I, I, I didn't have this moment in mind beforehand, but I was thinking a lot about it, uh, about fe feeling so like personally affected by the death of both David Bowie and Prince in, in one year. And, and if, it can feel silly sometimes to say like this really wounded me per personally to the loss of someone I didn't know. But I think it was like that kind, for me, uh, that kind of extravagant uh, queer identity that, that sparked something for me. And so film-wise, I think uh, Velvet Goldmine, I, I think back to again and again, because, and, and I, of course, there's so many ways uh, of being queer and identifying as queer. And for me, it, that feeling of otherness was also connected to desire to like make that otherness explicit and the idea that you could live like that and that you didn't have to mask the things about yourself that are strange. And the uh, Velvet Goldmine not only like revels in characters who have that quality already with the with the sort of da like David Bowie Iggy Pop set, um, but also has this central character who go who goes on that journey, who is in the process of um, beginning to identify his own queerness in the sense of both his sexuality and that that idea of like a, a otherness and expression through pop culture. Mm. So it's like this sort of self-reflexive answer in a way of like how you see the thing that does the thing <laughs> that you went through, so you go through it. And there's this incredible moment of Velvet Goldmine, which, and I don't think I've ever seen anything like it. I think you might know what I'm going to say. With Christian, this scene where Christian Bale um, sees uh, who's he watching on the television? There's a, there's like a, it, it might be Bowie himself, or there's yes. a gay character on screen, and he, he starts jumping up and down in front of his parents, saying, "That's me, that's me, that's yeah. me." And it's almost like a dream sequence, like the thing that he wishes he could say because he's yeah. seeing um, something that he's never been able to identify with before. But I think th that's a moment that I've never forgotten. And yeah. I did see that film before I was out, so there was um, there was a sense of this like wish fulfillment thing going on on the or screen. Even being pretty young, even if you can't identify it as um, explicitly as the character does in that moment, it's the idea of like, oh, people can be like this, like you can live like this, and it completely changes your the possibility that the future holds for you and the kind of person you are. Mm -hmm. And then I want to also add because we we were also talking about there's like. The film that kind of sparked something for you when you were young, and then if you, if you, I guess for me, like I'd been thinking more about my queer identity in the last few years, and had seen, uh, or I was asked to watch this film to do the press notes that I had never seen. It's an older film, but um, Desert Hearts, and there, there aren't enough lesbian movies. Period. There just aren't <laughs> that many. Um, ben, who's here, actually asked me to do those press notes. But I, uh, <laughs> I yeah, and um, that helped me think about 
It has a really complex sense of queer identity that I think is hard to come by and really stands the test of time and really helped me like refocus thinking about both the idea of, of like queer being queer as a human, but also um, queer perspective as a filmmaker, like what it meant for the, the director of this film to be a lesbian and why that um, me- makes for something that's sort of more substantial and nuanced than you'd expect in the story. It's not exclusively about the fact that the people who fall in love, the central characters, are happen to both be women. That's a factor, and it's very, a very important factor. But it doesn't skimp on all the other things that shift when you address that part of your identity. Unfortunately, mine is not going to be as like deep. Um, <laughs> so I feel bad because my, my, I, Mike already knows I just my like answer. Rock, it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> Mike already knows my answer because I've written about it for him. But for me, the earliest moment of queer identification on screen was Batman Returns, the first <laughs> movie that I saw in the theater. For a number of reasons, I thought Batman was hot. <laughs> I knew that. Like I just remember it, this is the first movie I saw in movie theaters, and there was just something about being in a dark movie theater mm. with my parents, but it's dark, so you're not thinking about your parents. And being like, wow, this is interesting. Um, <laughs> and Batman Returns is the one to refresh everyone's memory. It's the one with Michelle Pfeiffer. Michelle Pfeiffer plays Catwoman. Her way of becoming Catwoman is a term that I would not have used when I was four or five, but would use now as a little kinky with the whip <laughs> and with yeah. the, you know, there's a moment where uh, Batman throws a kind of acid pack at her and she has like a little bit of an acid burn and I distinctly remember in the dark of that theater when Selena Kyle and Bruce Wayne outside of their alternative identities are making out on the couch there's this moment where he hikes up the uh, sleeve to kind of reveal the acid burn and I remember seeing that as a kid and thinking like this is weird like there's something about it that was very charged to me Um, in addition to the fact that you know it's like taking the cat lady and putting it on its head and turning it into something sexy and interesting. I didn't know why I was so interested in these things as a, a young person, and I, I, it took me a while to understand that that was a, a moment for me, because it wasn't, you know, it's a man and a woman making out, but it's also like a man who runs around in tights and a woman who runs around in tights, <laughs> um, you know, making out in a way. It just, it just did something for me. Um, and then beyond that, I, you know, it's interesting because I, I can't remember ex, like explicitly watching queer things until I was older, mm-hmm. but it was just, in terms of my attraction to what was on screen, it was just always a factor. <coughs> I, was, I was attracted to Batman for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> um, and that was always, that was like, I was telling my mom about this recently, you know, I was, because I was talking about this panel with her and was telling her, you know, I don't know if I've ever told you this, but I was always really into Batman. And she's like, I know. And I was like, no, but like, I was like, really into Batman. And she's like, I know. Um, uh, which, is, which is, you know, just in terms of queer identity, it's, it just, it's, it's largely about, you know, the extent to which it's about desire. It wasn't, it wasn't so much a matter of identifying with the queerness on screen, although I think that reading of Batman is not inappropriate. Mm. But it was just realizing that I could have these private desires as I was watching things, being in love with Leonardo DiCaprio and Titanic and being really upset that he died for reasons that were, even within the context of that movie, way in excess of <laughs> that movie. And, and then also just like every, every, you know, or at least many, many little gay boys just have their moment of Judy Garland or Betty Davis in All About Eve, which my mom made me watch as a kid, and I think it's because she knew. Uh, she knew, that, you know, there's just there's a camp appeal there. Um, that was just a moment for me. 
things like that, where it was just about more about my private desire mm-hmm. than about seeing queer things on screen. Uh, you know, before I started to express myself as a queer person, I, I guess I just always, yeah, I just always had queer desire, and so non-queer things were queer for me because the guys were hot. Um, I couldn't talk to people about that per se, but I was just as in love with Jonathan Taylor Thomas as every like you know girl my age was outwardly able to be. I liked I liked home improvement of all shows for for that reason. Um, so it, you know it's interesting to track that too, just like I guess like why was I such a horny little child? But really like like how did I just how did I start to identify what my desires were because of heartthrobs? Heartthrobs that I was interested in just weren't women. Mm-hmm. It's interesting how. Um, coming of age, these sorts of desires can be sometimes ungendered. I mean, yeah. you were talking, like the re- appeal that the Michelle Pfeiffer character had for you, I can completely relate to. I remember watching Batman Returns and being much more attracted to her. Yeah. Not, I don't know if it was because of the leather and the whip, but <laughs> I actually, you know, I had, I cut out a picture of her and I put it on the wall next to my bed. Yeah, well, it's a perfect and example of yeah, it was not her Batman. with him. There, there's, I mean, it's the kinky, there's a kinky aspect to it, but, it's, but there's something kind of almost almost gender neutral about it when you're a child. Yeah. When the distinction you're making about like whether it's because you you identify as that person and that has holds a kind of queerness or gender or gender queering mm-hmm. um, versus a desire for that person, like that it can be indistinct to you below a certain age. So yeah. you're like, I just have this powerful attraction to this person yeah. and their way of being, and it doesn't have um, a definition yet. Yeah, and, and whose behavior was I mimicking? It wasn't, <laughs> it wasn't Batman. It was Michelle Pfeiffer it after she gets punched off the roof coming home. Yeah. yeah, and like destroying her things and like <laughs> imitating her cats and her behavior and being sort of slick and saucy and it was like that was interesting to me as the thing I wanted to be yeah there was there was it was an identification like you're saying there was a certain time in my life where I was very um attuned to extremely feminine things on screen and I, I remember being sort of obsessed with the film Little Shop of Horrors but oh. especially the Audrey character mm. and kind of wanting to uh wear the high heels yeah. wanting to put on the furs I mean this is and this is not something that it carried over necessarily to my adult life, but I, I was identifying with a femininity and I found it very appealing and, and it was it was either sexual or not and I don't know, but those yeah. things are kind of conjoined. I'm also interested um, in the idea of um, you talking about Batman specifically just because I think about children growing up today and they must all, all of their crushes must be superheroes because we're so super saturated by superhero <laughs> yeah. culture. I mean, movies are only superheroes now. Yeah. It's just monopolized our entire multiplex. So yeah. every child growing up must have, they're, they're, they're going to have these primal moments Right where they yeah. like look at Chris Evans or they or or Scarlett Johansson. I think this is when I realized my sexuality. Well, it's, you know, interesting that you mentioned that because something I think about with superheroes a lot is just how, you know, when I was when I was seeing superhero movies as a kid, that was a moment where superhero as explicitly as sex symbol was more of a thing than I think studios want it to be now. Like mm-hmm. Nicole Kidman in Batman Forever. Pulling the bat signal <laughs> so that Batman can arrive and she can be in her negligee and sort of hit on him, like get laid, basically, like using it like a booty call. It's something that would not happen, I think, in a superhero movie now. Like the the sense that like superheroes were sex objects was different with Val Kilmer and Michael Keaton. And in Marvel movies, they don't really have time for that kind of desire. <laughs> <laughs> but it's just too bad. And sense of humor, like I, th- yeah. I mean, not to like dig too much into the Batman genre specifically, but I think that that era of Batman movies shared more DNA with the TV show and was still being informed yeah. by that kind of 
humor. And I kind of miss that, like, I, I think. And I think there is something sexy about that. Camp and sexuality are missing generally from mainstream cinema. I mean, this is a, a, something that I was actually going to bring up later to not go into too much now, but I mean, general sexuality in general, not even just homosexuality, is just missing from movies. There's no sensuality, there's no texture, there's no tactility, yeah. and um, I think that's something that we're really missing, and that's why the superhero films perhaps feel a little anodyne or asexual, actually. To go back to my <laughs> sexual awakening, because I know everybody's <laughs> dying to hear. Um, um, well, there are two. There's, there's, the, there's the, the identification, the realization, and for me that was, believe it or not, because it sounds too much like things that I love today, but I remember I was watching uh, this episode of Siskel and Ebert, and, um, <laughs> that's, and it ends there. <laughs> um, I was like, who are they? Um, no. Uh, <laughs> and they were reviewing this movie called The Long Day Closes. Mm -hmm. um, this is Terrence Davies, this brilliant gay filmmaker, um, a filmmaker that I, it was very important to me. I've actually gone out to write a book about him. He's become my favorite filmmaker, but I was about 12 years old at the time. And I remember them reviewing this film, and this was a time, because of Siskel and Ebert, they, the art films would be able to come into the home. This is something we don't have any anymore with, with criticism changing so much. So they would, they would always do their mainstream films, then they would, the second half of the show, they'd do like art films, mm. films that most people wouldn't know about. And I think that had a lot to do with people being more aware of different kinds of films back then. And they reviewed this film, Londe Closes, and there was a shot of this little boy at the window, and he's looking out the window, and he's looking at this shirtless man in the backyard laying bricks. And he's just staring at him. And then I remember they, they would come back, and they, would, they talked about the scene, and they said, well, this is about a young boy's, like, he's like a 12-year-old kid. Mm -hmm. He's coming of age, slow realization of his homosexuality. And the fact that they were just talking about this in my mm -hmm. living room, and that this was a thing that, that was out there that I could potentially relate to. I didn't end up seeing the film for about probably seven or eight years after that because mm -hmm. I had no access to it. And I finally did because of the library. I love them. Thank God for libraries. But that was a very important moment. And then in terms of just um, more, more of like a, okay, this is what I want to see, erotic attraction, the talent to Mr. Ripley. Um, <laughs> the talent to Mr. Ripley, even Jim. though, oh yeah. So you could, I mean, you could say this is not a, a positive, you know, a positive image, positive progressive image of homosexuality. It's a Patricia Highsmith novel. It's, and uh, he's ba the, the gay character is basically a serial killer. Um, but the way that it homoeroticizes the Jude Law character, who's the object of affection, who's ultimately killed, is very, very, very uh, potent. And he's lit like Grace Kelly was lit in To Catch a Thief, basically. And the way Hitchcock would just light most of, in his color films, most of his, um, his blondes. And it was just so, I had, I had never seen, I, I, I don't think I had ever seen a male form and a, and a face that was lit so lovingly. Mm. So that was a kind of like a, it was one of those things where I wasn't out yet, but I was so, it was so clear that I was able to talk about it with everyone. We were just like, oh my God, did you see Jude Law on the Tales of Mr. Ripley? I've never seen such a beautiful man before. Um, and so yeah, there were a few years left, but it was kind of like the, it was like the door opening just a little bit, just to be able to appreciate someone of my own sex. Mm -hmm. So we've been talking about, you know, the films that were perhaps, uh, that mattered to us at a certain point and that maybe helped create our identities, but I'm also curious about now as, as, as writers and movie watchers and makers and lovers, um, what are things that are inspiring you today, like films that you've seen recently that inspire you? I mean, I, I, 
I can point towards things that you've written. That, like Fury had wrote an amazing feature on Moonlight when it came out for Film Comment magazine, and uh, Cam's written a lot about Call Me by Your Name, Beach Rats, some really interesting recent films. So um, you can talk about those or other films. But very curious if there's something that's just really inspired you lately. Are you passing it to me? Because <laughs> um, it's a hard question. Well, or I, I would dig into the the example that you mentioned. Like, and I think I've actually been on other panels where people refer to that article, and I I felt something while writing it. I think it might have been one of the first times, if not the first time, that I like referred to myself as a queer person mm -hmm. in my writing, which I don't mm -hmm. do often. And also one of the first times that I chose to use an I statement to identify myself as a person of color, I was very adamant about doing that. Like I, you, you edited that piece and I actually remember there was a, a question, and this came up with other people that I showed it to, where I said something like, we deserve these kinds of films, or like, we also deserve to have these kinds of stories. And you know, I got some feedback that like, does, it, do you, does that suggest that you are so closely related to the subjects of the, this film? Like, are you suggesting that you were a black person and that you go through the same person thing that a black person does, which I don't, you know, like being a person of color also has its gradations. But I really thought about, like I really had to think hard about why I was including that and the um, value or necessity to state my identity there. And and that ch that choice meant a lot to me. Hmm. Like that's, and I think that it's why people come back to that article because I chose to make a very personal political statement in it as well. And that's what I love about the film, even though um, Barry Jenkins, the director, doesn't describe it as a, as a political film, doesn't want to talk about it as such, but that's part of what makes it so beautiful because it doesn't have to be in order to resonate with a lot of people in that way. Mm -hmm. And to sort of like identify with that quality of the film was important to me. It was also the first article that I wrote for Film Comment and I had this concern about like, of course, like the, <laughs> the first article I write for them is going to be this like gushing fangirl <laughs> letter to like, oh, th thank you for, you know, just like just saying that in, in queer stories and, and particular stories about like queer people of color from a particular class background don't have to have XYZ as the aesthetic tent poles. It doesn't have to use this kind of music to suggest that you're in the hood. It doesn't have to um, be cut this way or ha follow this trajectory, which happens just still so frequently um, that if you choose the genre, you must do this. Um, and I found it so liberating and exciting. It is a film I come back to and the the I've also thought about like why I wrote so passionately. And it's, it's, it was an okay time to gush on that movie because that was <laughs> before it was even released. So you had seen this film and you said, what is this amazing new thing? I mean, you have to, as a critic, you also feel like you really need to push something that you believe in mm -hmm. strongly yeah. and you don't want it to get, a movie like that to get lost. It just felt good, like it, in, a, in a way that I, that I hadn't um, in a while mm -hmm. in the theater, yeah. Yeah, Moonlight was big for me for a number of reasons. It was. It was a movie that came out early in my career as a like full-time critic. And I actually remember when the trailer dropped, thinking, what happens if I don't like this movie? <laughs> right. What happens if I, like Mr. Gay Black Critic, like Wesley Morris was no longer a film critic at that point, and, and among like film critics with like staff jobs, it was like me and Armand White. And I just remember thinking, uh -oh. uh, which is like, a, yeah, me and Urban White is the like, title of your title, own right? <laughs> um, but I had this real, you know, this real moment with my editors actually, that, and we kind of laugh about it afterwards. But I just remember having to call a meeting with my editors and say, okay, 
what if I don't like this movie? Which is a possibility, right? Like, I don't have to like the movie. Yeah. It doesn't have to be a good movie. But I was early in my career as a critic, and I just was really not in the mood to have to do the, like, disentangling of this is important or this is aesthetically significant mm -hmm. or I liked this but or, you know, this is beautiful but or this is important but. Um, luckily, I love the movie, but that was a very educational space to be in because I just remember thinking, man, if I don't like this movie and I have to say that, you know, and then, like, the TIFF reviews came out and they were all gushing, and other, other festival reviews came out and they were all gushing just uniformly. And then, you know, the New York Times piece ran, I think, before mine and, and A.O. Scott's, you know, he did this huge, like, this is the most important movie ever thing. And I just remember thinking, what if I'm the one? <laughs> like, what, what is that, like, it just, it just raises a lot of questions. Like, what is that, like, what does that mean? And I, I, I had to revisit that question when uh, Call Me While Your Name came out because it's a movie that I like, but I don't love. I don't mm -hmm. have, like, an overwhelming amount of affection for it. It's a movie that I like, though. But I remember thinking, I just kept getting into fights with 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 gay critic friends, gay friends, mm -hmm. gay male friends specifically, about just what my job is. Like, what, what my job is when that film comes right. out. Mm -hmm. Like, this movie that was undeniably going to be big. I didn't predict that it was going to be, like, a Best Picture nominee, but I had a feeling it was, like, on its way to that kind of acclaim. And what do I... What do I say? I, I saw Come By Your Name at Sundance, where I think it debuted, right? Mm -hmm. um, I think, it, yeah, it was at the debut showing, and I liked it a lot. I also, at Sundance, saw a movie called Beach Rats by Eliza Hittman, and this is a thing that I think gets forgotten a little bit now, but at that festival, when Eliza Hittman's film came out, for people who haven't seen it, it's a movie about a closeted uh, 17 or 18-year-old in uh, Brooklyn, Queens? Brooklyn. Brooklyn. Uh, who, in addition to sort of, you know, trying to date a girl, has these sort of anonymous sex encounters with many meets online. But the thing that really got people was toward the end, there's an act of violence. And it's a movie that raised these questions about why do LGBT coming of age stories have to have violence? Um, why does it have to be this sort of self-torture? And that put me in a, put, kind of put me in a place because I was like, Yes, in terms of like the history of representation, that is all true. But for a number of reasons, I think this is a far more interesting movie than Call Me By Your Name. But it's not, like I hear people when they say, I don't want this to be the movie that sort of speaks for the genre because it is self-tortured sort of mm -hmm. questions about, am I gay, what does it mean? And, that, and it ends with a kind of violence, this kind of ethical crisis that, yeah, in the context of LGBT representation is stale. And I just had to do a lot of, I just find myself back in these corners of having to think about, like, as a critic, when you put your weight behind a film, we're at a moment where you can't really disentangle, like, when we're talking about the history of representation, capital H history, capital R representation, you really do have to think a lot about what am I, what am I supporting, which doesn't make me really hesitate to sort of, I can't lie about what I like, I'm really bad about that. But, but it does make you think, yeah, like, I do want more people to see Call Me By Your Name because it is a good movie and because it, it, what I find sort of less exciting about it is actually that there's no questions about sort of, you know, it's like a, it's like a very, it's a, an experience of coming to terms with your sexuality that I cannot relate to. But I appreciate that about the movie and I understand why that's important to people. But man, like, I just think that Beach Ratch is a better movie. Mm -hmm. It's the same with Moonlight. It's yeah. like, it comes up as one of those movies where the characters don't have sex. 
and people think that that's an important thing that should happen in an LGBTQ movie that goes mainstream, that people should be confronted mm -hmm. with queer sex. Mm -hmm. And I, yeah, I hear that. I mean, I don't know why a handjob on the beach is like, that, it, that was the most sensual handjob. It was the most <laughs> sensual handjob. Like not since the roller coaster yeah. of fear. <laughs> okay. Wow. So sensual a handjob. True. But at, my counter argument is always yeah, but like the stroke of the head at the end of the movie is so much more intimate to me than yeah. anything I've seen in most movies, no matter what the sexuality is. That like I don't really need to see like prosthetic penises to yeah. get that. And conversely, know? if something goes too graphic, then it can be criticized for being over the top. Yeah. I mean, Carol. Yeah. Carol's a good example. Some people thought that the sex scene in Carol was unrealistic or, or overly stylized. I don't necessarily agree. I heard I've heard that a lot. But Blue yeah. is the warmest color is another film where the what? sex was so heavily criticized I for being. I wanted to explicit. talk about both of those, and this relates to what you brought up, which is the idea that that because there isn't enough general representation, each individual film has this like insane responsibility yeah. to yeah. fulfill on every level, and so also. Uh, conversely is ine inevitably going to disappoint somebody and I, I understand why like my um, my friends who are lesbians and not in film are like I wanted this lose the warmest color for example to like be the movie for us to make me feel that this like sweeping romance existed for us and it just didn't do that because it didn't necessarily work on every level. And as a critic, I found the sex scenes in Blue is the Warmest Color to be very interesting. Like I actually, and I, I wrote about this film too, I think for Reverse Shot, um, mm -hmm. about how like it, it functions in a way that makes sense with the overall cinematic language of the film. Like, yes, there's something unrealistic about it, but the film isn't in a realistic mode. The film is about like a sexual spark that's so consuming that it completely changes your life. My friend, a friend of mine who's a, a, a lesbian woman who doesn't work in film, said the words, nobody has varsity level sex their first time. And she just like, <laughs> could not get over it. Like after that moment, she, 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 she wasn't with the movie anymore. So like, I, I hear that criticism, but I, but I, it's fair. And, yeah, and I, I was I was moved in other ways. Was I moved by that being a lesbian story? Not really. I was moved by the first love quality of it. I was moved by other aspects of it. I appreciated that stories that just work as a love story can be about same sex or queer couples. But do I do I think it, that sex is like personally like like exciting for me no especially because I watched it in a press screening with like 100 white single straight dudes <laughs> and it was uncomfortable like there were a lot of there were a lot of things about that experience that I don't know if I can describe as like sexy but I think there's value to that film I mean same with Carol I actually find I don't don't know that I responded so strongly to the sex scenes of Carol, but even more so than Blue is the Warmest Color, which just be, by nature of the story has a kind of like feral intensity to the ro central romance. Um, Carol is like, you get to have that sweeping, a classic love story between two women. Like you get to have the moment where you're like, oh wait, please turn around, please turn around and see her. You know, the, and I found it valuable for that reason. Like it stirred and moved something in me um, yeah. that, that went beyond whether or not the sex was realistic. <laughs> and I, th I think the, the I, I don't think it was that graphic, the sex thing. They were actually I mean, very tender, they're very, Carol. The, people in Carol, just uncomfortable but people with talked about sex. it. But I think because they're, because it's because the double standard, right. you, there have been graphic, more graphic lesbian sex scenes throughout film than there have scenes between men. I think people probably expected, like they, or they wanted Call Me By Your Name to, to be a little more graphic. I, 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 I agree with you, I don't think that there needed to be, you know, 
yeah. James Ivory himself was saying recently, like, I, you know, I wanted there to be full frontal. I said in my script there would be full frontal, and the director was too cowardly and he took it out. But I don't know, would that really improve the film? Yeah, I mean, it's it's well, it's complicated. Something I always think about is like once we get past the log line of lesbian romance set in the fifties, <laughs> you know, once we get past that and start to think of the movie as in itself a kind of movie, mm -hmm. it's like when you think of Carol. I'm, Carol's just so fascinating for me. I can see why I guess some people think it's really conservative, but for me, what's always been interesting about that movie is the fact that Carol is just, she has this, like, this ain't my first time at the rodeo attitude yeah. about and everything, that you meet her ex-girlfriend, that yeah. her husband knows where her ex-girlfriend lives, yeah. and is, like, having these temper tantrums about it. It's like, <laughs> it's like that is fascinating, because that is not what I usually get from, from kind of queer romance in the 1950s. I don't get the sort of everybody knows vibe from right. those movies. It's like far from right. heaven. It's everything's under the surface. Yeah. No one talks about it. But it doesn't right. mean people weren't gay or not, right. you know, or, or having interracial relationships. Or right, and it doesn't mean that Carol. I, I just I've seen Carol be described as a movie about repression, and it's like, what is being <laughs> what is Kate Blanchett repressing in this movie? She's not repressing anything, right? She's like getting hers in this movie, right? Like, um, it's like a joke with her with with Sarah Paulson's character that she's like into all these other women, um, and I just I personally just don't think that that's a huge trope in mainstream movies about LGBT representation, mm -hmm. and the same with Moonlight. It's like. First of all, I think we have to allow that a character's in-game is not sex. Um, I think we have to allow that a character's in-game can be, I mean, clearly every moment leading up to the end of that movie is about, about just intimacy. It's about like that sort of male touch mm -hmm. as a thing that's missing from his life. Mm. And so for that to be the end game is so much more powerful than, I mean, look, they're like attractive guys. Like if they, uh, it's not like a sex scene between them would be the worst thing. <laughs> but like, but it's just, it, I don't need that. And it didn't seem like, uh, speaking of like your first time, it's not going to be Farsi level sex. Yeah. That to me is where Moonlight didn't go. And that's yeah. why I liked it. Yeah. Um, and Blue's Warmest Color is the same thing. And a movie that's so full of, like, not to be crude, but, like, eating and, like, <laughs> mm -hmm. like ingesting, desire. consuming desire. It's like, yeah, those sex scenes in the context of that movie where every other scene is eating pasta <laughs> and, like, gorging yourself on things, those sex scenes are directed in a way that is consistent. Yes. <laughs> and, and we can argue about that part, but, like, the basic fact of... You just can't, it seems sometimes like you have this invisible standard that, that all queer movies are sort of held to, and the sex scenes have to be this because the history of LGBT representation is this. And the end game has to be this because the history of LGBT representation end game in movies is this. It's over here, it's oppressed, it's repressed, etc. And I get that, but I, I don't need every movie to reverse the history of representation, I think. Mm -hmm. The fact that these movies are winning the Palme d'Or and Best Picture. Like, Steven Spielberg was the head of the can during the year that Blue's the Warmest Color won. Mm -hmm. And that, to me, is, it's that's like a book. Right. Uh, <laughs> frankly. Um, you know, like, his his excitement over that movie is exciting and it fascinating me. But uh, I'm, I was just going to say, how realistic is sex, heterosex in movies anyway? Like, it's sex right. that's directed mm -hmm. for a purpose. It is to, like, be part of this larger vision and say something about like the, the way that a musical number might it's like that's right. not realistic but it serves an emotional purpose in that particular moment of a film that's part of a cohesive story basic instinct sex scenes are <laughs> the most realistic that i've ever seen the most realistic interrogation scenes <laughs> um,
Oscilloscope Laboratories is pleased to present Summer 1993. A New York Times critic's pick, this enchanting debut film from Carla Simone is a moving portrait of what it's like to be a child in an adult world and features flawless performances by its two young stars. Summer 1993, which has received a rare 100% score on Rotten Tomatoes, is now playing exclusively at the Film Society of Lincoln Center. It's funny, picking up on something you were saying about um, images of positivity, uh, you know, positive mm. representation being the only valid forms, you know, which is how a lot of the discussion seems, seems to revolve around this. Um, I remember in doing a lot of research about Terrence Davies, he's, he's a director who has actually come out and said, like, I had a really hard time growing up being gay in the 50s in Liverpool. I don't like being gay. It ruined my life. Yeah. And But here the, here's the art that I'm making about it. He wrote, he's written books about it. He's made many movies about it. And he, whenever he speaks at Q&As, people in the audience often get very angry with him, and they, mm-hmm. they, they, they want him to be happy. Right. They yeah. want him to be positive. They want the, the representations to be the same. So I think that all kind of plays into like the response to a movie like this. So this year we had this movie called Love, Simon, mm-hmm. which was the, pretty much the first studio-financed movie about... With a, with a game protagonist. That's like a rom-com. That's yeah. a, teen it's, it's a teen it's a like, rom-com. It could be a John Hughes teen film, but it happens to be a, about a boy's coming out. And um, in discussing that, I mean, everybody wanted this to be the best and the happiest, pos- most positive image. And I think that I understand that we need to have that kind of a movie. And I think because of that, some people went in the other direction. And they thought this is actually too normalizing. I, I, I wrote about it and I have a lot of different thoughts about it. And I thought that it was too, trying to be too aggressively normalizing. There's this whole opening voiceover where he actually, he's addressing the audience and he says, I'm just like you, I'm normal. And I thought, well, who, who's you? What audience do you think is watching this? You have a completely imagined heterosexual audience for this film. Um, but then I realized, the wait a minute. <laughs> I realized this is the audience for this film. Yeah. It's it's, we are so behind the times that in 2018 we need a film to tell us that you know a gay person is a human being basically. Yeah. And I thought it was a charming movie, and I cried at the end. But I think there's just too much weight being placed on films like that. Well, it's funny you mentioned Love Simon because there is that moment in Love Simon that seems I'm not going to say it's a reference to Long Day Closes because the trope of falling for a hot construction worker or whatever is not new, but (laughs) in life, in art, it's just, it's a thing. But there is that moment where, as in Long Day Closes, the little boy sort of sees the sort of laboring man and has this moment of kind of lust, like child lust, at, at, you know, just realizing that he's interested in this man. Um, In Love, Simon, there's a a guy, a hot guy, like, mowing a lawn across the street or something. Um, He gives a leaf blower. Right, right, a leaf blower, right? Something very very on the nose. Um, And I remember in the moment, like, comparing these two things and and feeling like, wow, but Long Day Closes is really, really making me sit with that desire. Mm. Um, It creates a sort of vacuum around that moment and really kind of isolates it as a moment of, wow. Like, not just, you're cute, can I have your number? Because that just wasn't, (laughs) that's not Tam Davies. But but just like, whoa. Like, this is something I'm looking at. Whereas Love, Simon was like, you know, I'm going to go outside and talk to this guy. And it's like, on the one hand, it's like, this is a great signature of what's different about you know, what, what Love, Simon's trying to do that's interesting, that's valid. 
Um, and the crying teenagers behind me when I saw it, like, that's meaningful to me. Uh, you know, it is. I wasn't crying. I had the same experience, though. I mean, but, yeah. but I, like, I, ha I was moved by them, but they were, like, loudly, they were applauding. Yeah. They were applauding happy, crying teenagers. Yeah. Which was really wow. sweet. Well, yeah, which is really, which, and it's like, I'm not going to take that. Like, Batman turns did not give me that. So and, just, like, and just to be, just to be clear, what they were responding to was when the main, when the boys got together. Like, yeah. when he found out who was the secret admirer yeah. Was, and they end up on a Ferris wheel and they kiss each other and, and it's so ridiculous it's hokey but it really moved people they had young people that never seen anything like that absolutely yeah and that like that's what do you say to that like that's important but I, I remember walking out of the theater thinking you know it's really too bad that in 2018 like this is this is it like this is the first gay mm -hmm. studio teen romance movie and this is as far as you can go, and the reason that these teens are responding to this in this way is because there is this vacuum of representation, and that to me is not something to applaud. Like I'm applaud, like yes, the movie, for sure, but putting the movie in the context is just sort of like I feel like I'm just always being reminded of how far the rest of society hasn't come, whereas I'm like out here, you know, it's like you're trying to live your life. And that means so many things. That means being a queer person operating in the world, dealing with a, a, a sense of violence in some cases, but also having your own desires and your own experience, sexual experiences and all these things, and just feeling like, so these two boys hold hands at the end of this movie, and that's where the rest of the country is. <laughs> um, and that, to me, is sort of what is such a letdown. And, and the cynic in me is also like, the kid that he gets with at the end looks like Obama. <laughs> like, to me, <clears throat> to me, there's just a moment of sort of like, this country is so weird. <laughs> like, what is wrong with this? That like, the progressive stand that this film can take is that it's interracial at the end, and that the black kid is like such, in fact, is there a Halloween party where that kid dresses up like Obama? Isn't yes. that? Yeah. It's like, ex yeah. It's like explicitly, explicitly like, Jewish. Hey. He's like a Jewish black. Right, a young black man. Jew. Yeah, right. And it's just like, wow. There's like, like this is this is how you sit in a studio meeting and figure out how far <laughs> yeah. you can go. Like yeah. this is this yeah. is what you say to executives. Like, well, can it be a black kid? Okay, yeah. if it's going to be a black kid, what does he have to look like? What what does his skin tone have to be? Well, and of course, the main character, Love Simon, is like the most white bred white kid he's ever. So he's, mask for mask. He's, he's, yeah, he's so mask-for-mask. He's so no butch, fast, he's no white, fans. He's clearly not gay. Yeah. <laughs> He, I'm just he I'm has sorry, like I'm accusing Josh Duhamel and Jennifer Garner as parents. <laughs> yeah, they have a really big house. It's like on one hand you want mainstream representation, period. But if you feel that it's pushed there without sort of earning this swell of like real understanding behind it, that it does make you cynical. It makes you feel like um, choices. Le like yes, it's totally great that they made this one character 18 minorities so they could represent that all in one. Right. <laughs> but, but, you, but you think like, is this for commodification purposes? Is it so, is it so, that's, so that you can say you checked all these boxes in one person? Which right, is, it sounds so obvious that it's painful to even say it out loud, but it's the same way in which people try to sort of shallowly address representation issues in many ways. Like, don't worry, we hired this one person who's like a black lesbian, so we totally got it covered, even if 90% of the company uh, is in the majority. And I, I mean, I will preface this by saying we went to Love, Simon together, and you know that my response afterwards was like, I kept saying, this is so stupid, this is so stupid, this is so stupid, and then I went <laughs> through the, the like, whole back half. And I think less because of like seeing a gay couple at the forefront of a romantic comedy, which I would like, but that did bring up a lot of like 
confu more confusing questions for me. I think it was the wish fulfillment aspect of having a perfect coming out and mm. that and that like yearning. Um, and I do think that can be really powerful for people to even if it's unrealistic, like sometimes movies are not about reality. And the idea that in some world, I guess, if you come from from a, from enough like love and privilege, um, mm -hmm. your parents just have that kind of moment with you. Mm. Um, for the, the 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 mainstreaming, I mean, I think about this all the time. Where like you know, we talk about how we uh, minority uh, groups don't want um, understanding and equal representation and equality. But the desire to show that immediately is also is a not always satisfying and b sometimes strange when you also have considered that part of your identity to like mark you as part of a subculture or part of like a um, yeah like if 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 you if the choice is I hide this or I accept otherness and I'm proud of my otherness then that the turning of that otherness to mainstream is like a confusing and rocky uh, process. Mm. Well, let's say it's interesting to tie this in all into the idea of film critics and film criticism and who are the film critics and who has control and who has power. And um, I mean, if you just, you know, do a basic survey, m most critics are, let's say, let's say the top tier is very clearly a huge pool of straight white men. Mm -hmm. I'd say, I, I don't know where it would go under that, but that's like way out in the front. <laughs> right. Mm -hmm. um, and under there we have, we have gay male critics, right? Um, probably still mostly gay, gay white male critics. Um, and then we have like a smattering of everyone else. It's like, where are the women? Where are the lesbian critics? Where are the black critics? I'm a unicorn. And, <laughs> 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 just, just a multiple unicorn. Box. Um, and I think that, you know, this is, uh, this is like a profession that we understand, but also, you know, we talk a lot about um, gatekeepers and Hollywood and who's really running things, but film critics are an essential part of this entire industry because they have a lot of power on what, um, what gets seen, what is recommended, what studios listen to because they need to do more of, and I, there's just the tiniest gestures being made towards tipping that a little bit, and it has to do with editors hiring the right people, and, 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 but still, like, there are very few, if any, editors in, the, in those uh, minority roles. So um, I'm just wondering, yeah, how you how you feel about this landscape, and do you think it's changing, and do you think it's, do you think we're still kind of just doomed? I think people are really trying. I think you know, this sort of as I sort of alluded to before. I think the first wave of trying looks like we found these six people, and we're going to keep pushing these six people. Like I sometimes when I get asked to do panels and I am the only minority in several areas, I sort of ask like, well, who else did you talk to? Who else did you consider? Like, here's a list of 10 other people who share the same on paper profile as me. Like, please consider including them too or asking them next time. So I do, I do think an effort is being made. I think sometimes I think about the fact that because it's still so obviously a majority straight white male environment that sometimes I write with that in mind, and I don't know if that's a, a good thing. So like when I wrote that Blue is the Warmest Color piece, I felt like I was, unlike Moonlight, there had already been quite a few reviews already. I, I wasn't um, before, I think I wrote for the release and not um, in an early festival uh, premiere area. And I, I felt the need to address immediately, like here's what all these men who are writing about how bad the sexes are like getting wrong about this film and why that it's you know I, I feel that there's way too great um, a, a, a weight being placed on um, this one perspective and I would like to 
kind of div- I would I would like to be able to step back from that more and like look at the film without having to look at the response already. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think it's important that obviously that more diverse critics get hired not just sort of for staff jobs but freelancing and all these things. The thing that I'm keeping my eye on and this is something that happened at my previous job this is a fight that I got into actually over Love Simon is you know, you know that I'm the gay critic, mm-hmm. you know that I'm a black critic. When your editors sort of try to wield that in terms of how they assign you things, mm-hmm. that's when I get annoyed. Mm-hmm. Because in, in particular, um, unless you're someone who sort of has made that kind of political or cultural lane your beat, so you're writing about that across media and you're doing it to talk about music and TV and all these other things. If you are someone who considers himself to be a film critic, it is annoying when mm. You know, if you're a freelancer, it's annoying when people only peg you for Black Panther. Mm -hmm. If you're an Asian-American critic, it is annoying when editors only come to you for movies like Isle of Dogs or things where it's, like, problematic because they want that piece. Mm -hmm. That, to me, is when I get really pissed. Mm -hmm. And a fight that I got into over Love, Simon was Love, Simon came out the same weekend as another you know, high point of American cinema, Tomb Raider. (laughs) (laughs) And I didn't really have a preference over which one to cover, or both, or whatever. But it annoyed me that my editors pushed Love, Simon without talking to me. Mm. Because then I was like, do you just want the gay piece on this? Like, do you just want, you know I'm going to yell at this movie. You can tell from the trailer that I'm going to yell at this movie, because you know how I feel about things. You know what I'm going to say. I'm glad that I saw the movie, but I think I could have written my piece without seeing the movie. But I, you know, I I kind of was, I just bristled at that. I was like, you know, I also write on Hollywood stars and bad tentpoles, and Alicia Vikander is an actor I'm interested in because she kind of came from being a total, like, non-factor to winning an Oscar and is now, like, replacing Angelina Jolie. That's, like, a whole, that's interesting to me because I like thinking about Hollywood stars. And I'm not really that interested in the questions at the center of Love, Simon, but I know that I can write a piece about that. But I had to talk to them about, you know, why why was one so much more important to you than the other? I just want to know, I just wanted to hear them say that they knew that I could write the gay piece about it so that they could hear themselves say it and so that I could know. I, I, like, it's annoying, but, but you know, it, they're editors, so they are thinking about how to get the best piece, the most trafficked piece. And yes, I think that the Love, Simon piece trafficked a lot better than anything I would have said about Tomb Raider would have because it really wasn't that much for me to say about that movie, it turns out. But that's when I sort of, my, I perk up and I sort of start to pay attention. Like, like, do you only lean on queer writers when it's to write about queer things? Is that the way identity operates in hiring? That's something that I think a lot about when it comes to editors. Like, are you hiring a minority film critic, minority of any kind, because of the things that they can write that granted, yeah, we're at a point in the conversation where you don't want the straight white male critic writing on everything. You don't want that to be your only voice on things. But I also, as like the black gay critic, don't want that to be the way that you think of me as a writer because in terms of writing, like I write on a wide range of things. I don't only write about race, I don't only write about sexuality, and I have no problem with the people who choose for that to be their lane. But I get the impression that for a lot of people, particularly freelancers, they're not leaning on a black writer when something's happening in anime. 
they're not leaning on like the Latina writer for love signings, <laughs> <laughs> you know? Um, and, and, and they're certainly not leaning on trans writers for a fantastic woman because yeah, nobody's I mean, hiring trans writers. Nobody's hiring trans writers. And, and right, and, and it's just like, man, it, it's opened up this whole other category of errors for me where it's just like, we've gone from all the editors not even thinking of these people to only thinking of these people uh-huh. to cover their own asses so that when people on the internet see the byline, they don't think, why did you have John Karen Monica write about Beyonce when you have black writers and stuff? Well, maybe the black writers like <laughs> didn't want to write on Beyonce that weekend or were on vacation or whatever. Yeah. But, but fair question, but don't only go to the black writer because it's Beyonce. Like, you know, it, it's, it's a complicated metric but in terms of hiring, it, it, this is something I think a lot about. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I just feel with a lot of suspicion, just why did you email me? You know, a, a, a major newspaper once emailed me to write on a book. I'd never written book criticism in my life. And it was just to write on the black gate thing. And I was like, yeah, I like. They did a Google search. They, yeah, they're yeah. like, who oh, are the black cool writers we can go to? The, a yeah. young emerging writer. And it's just like, I appreciate the thought, but. Man, I like writing about like Jennifer Lawrence too. You know, like <laughs> I get to have an opinion on that too. Mm-hmm. It's a it's a it's a mix. It's hiring more people who can do more of these things, but also not tokenizing. Mm-hmm. Tokenizing is a thing. One of the one of the great pieces of writing that I return to a lot in my thinking is this is this 1978 essay called Responsibilities of a Gay Film Critic by Robin Wood. So Robin Wood was one of the great gay film critics of all time. He actually, um, he's dead now. He came out while he was a writer. He wrote, he was a scholar and a writer, a brilliant essayist for many years, writing about Hollywood films, foreign films. He talked a lot about about Bergman. Um, But at a certain point in the 70s, he he came out. And then he started to figure out in small ways how to get that I voice and how to get his personality into those things. And then he wrote this 1978 essay. And the... um, and the amazing thing about that essay, apart from everything, because it's so brilliantly written, is that his point is not, you know, now that I'm out, now that I'm, and this is in the 70s, so he's really dealing with, he's really mm-hmm. struggling through it. Now that I'm out, it doesn't mean that um, I'm going to be writing about gay films. It means that I'm going to be looking at films through a radical political lens. Yeah. Yeah. So the whole essay is about, um, now I'm seeing and want to write about this whole history of Hollywood films and what it means for these heteronormative attitudes. What are what do these depictions of marriage mean? What are he embraces Marxism more? I mean, there there was just this sense of like this means that I just have to look at things through a more uh, measured political, active way. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's something that we should keep in mind as writers, but also editors to keep in mind too. Like this, like being gay, the idea of being gay or being queer in some way, because queer is obviously has a lot of definitions. It, it's it's uh, it's more than just like a personal identity. I like this or that. It means that I am try- I need to embody a certain kind of spirit, and I need to look at the world in a fair way because I have, in, in a sense, I've been privileged to see it in a certain way. Yeah. So I mean, yeah. I, I highly recommend that essay for everybody. By the way, we are running out of time actually. So I just wanted to open it up. If there are any questions, or if there's anything you wanted to talk about in terms of, I don't know, anything that you have in mind for a discussion. Yeah. The one thing that bothers me about a lot of these films, be it, you know, Love, Simon, or um, I guess Blue is Warmest Color eventually wraps around that, is that I don't find a lot of queer films actually deal with the breaking up of relationships, say mm-hmm. maybe Happy Together by One Girl mm-hmm. Y. Mm-hmm. And I think that's somewhat problematic because 
everyone knows what first love is like. That's a feeling that can be transmuted across, I think, multiple sexual orientations. But the nuances of queer relationships depicted in cinema I find to be somewhat lacking, um, especially is there love after love, and how, how is that different from heteronormative relationship versus a homosexual relationship? And I, I don't know what you guys think about yeah, that. Yeah, that's interesting. Apart from Blue's Warmest Color, which is about a breakup, but it's still about first love, so yeah. you don't take it that serious, right. seriously. It's yeah. kind of like, oh, she'll get over it. She's a kid. I don't know. Actually, that's one of the reasons why I liked Blue's Warmest Color, mm-hmm. because I feel like the I, I felt the breakup, and it was, okay, it was less about the fact that you deal with the breakup at all, and more of the differences between them as people. And I thought that it was a really strong follow through in terms of what you see in their relationship and how they deal with it after the fact. So that was a thing to me that was relatable in a positive way, not relatable in a like, I guess we can get everybody to go see this movie right. if we make it relatable right. enough. Like I thought I thought that that, would, that felt true. But what, what are other? That's a really good question. Because when I, question. You know, I can think of films that, obviously lots of gay films end sadly and, mm-hmm. and relationships end badly, but they're usually couched in the past. Like, Right. Um, Carol ends up having a happy ending, thankfully, but like, yeah. um, there have been a lot of films. In terms of contemporary stories about just relationships between people of the same sex, and it just is this casual film about lives and maybe they break up, right. there isn't a lot. Or I'm, a I'm life, thinking. like the arc of a life that includes m- multiple loves and breakups. It's like, it ha- yeah. you're, it's true, it has to be focused on that moment, perhaps, because of because it's kinetic and that's easier for people. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. we don't have our before sunset Right. Right. Yet. But that is the thing that someone's inevitably going to do. I mean, I do value, again, I do value that in Carol, Carol has an ex-girlfriend. Um, yeah. and, and I still find it fascinating that her husband, Harge, knows where her ex-girlfriend lives, right. knows who she is. Yeah. Have um, an uneasy, strange community. Yeah, and, and, that, and that the ex-girlfriend has these jokes with Carol about, like, oh, of course you're attracted to so-and-so. That is even something that like doesn't feel like it comes up very often, the sort of like prehistory of queer relationships that this one character has. Granted, like the main character is someone who's kind of going through her first, um, you know, her first mm-hmm. kind of love in this way. Well, that's interesting. Um, There's also like the what, like one hot night yeah. queer yeah. movie. So like um, Ruben Rome and Weekend, yeah. which yeah. I think Weekend is a really good movie. That's I great. think Ruben Rome is not a good movie, but that's at least like veering into a. S- but it's super interesting that it's Andrew interesting. Hay, who directed Weekend, his next film was Forty Five Years, the Charlotte Rampling, Tom Courtney uh, movie about a straight marriage falling apart. Like when he went that way, it, it was right. a man and a woman. Right. Um, right. But it's um, I do love that film. I don't know. It's a really, really good question. Yeah. No one's made it yet. Yeah. <laughs> or there's like we were talking about Eastern Boys, which is like about a totally other kind of relationship, and I and that's mm-hmm. what I value oh, about yeah. that movie. It sort of it starts off as a, a sexual relationship between older man, mm-hmm. uh, older and younger man, and then um, you realize that he has this younger person has been seeking more, actually more of a father figure, and the relationship evolves in a way that is really um, that's excellent nuanced yeah. yeah I think it's still on Netflix it's a French movie Eastern Boys yeah so that there's a few examples but not enough yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. can this can this movie be about something else any other questions I just had a thought mm-hmm. I remember when they had their massacre at the post nightclub mm-hmm. Nick Jonas wanted to come down and, and talk about how horrible it was and a lot of people in the gay community told him that he had no business being there, mm-hmm. that that wasn't his fight, that wasn't his problem. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering if you gave the same kind of thing, being a, f- a critic, if you you are a critic of, of another group, 
that's not you, are you going to get crap back because you aren't of that group and you can't understand what they're going through? You get that. Mm. This, is a big, this, is a, this is a big question right now. Right? <laughs> I mean, well, as an example, um, a movie that you talked about already tonight, uh, Beach Rats, the director of that film is a she's a, a woman, um, and when she, she's, she had a couple Q and A's where people in the audience were angry with her because, just because she's like, how do you how can you make a movie about about young gay men like you're not one? And this is kind of a new debate where people kind of they want more voices, and I understand the need for the diversity, but. I, I find this bizarre because when we were growing up, they were, they, you weren't allowed to be gay and, and, and seen on, on the film. Yeah. And then it went to anybody who was gay, got murdered or killed, it was yeah. pathetic. So we've seen that thing change. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we don't see a lot of our lives because we've been together 54 years in a monogamous relationship, and we don't see that anywhere. Wow. Mm -hmm. Not yeah. even with straight people. But you can't be angry yeah. because you don't see yourself. I mean, because things are changing. I think they're getting better evolving. And I think it speaks to Cameron's point that the, that I think if you are in a, 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 a a group with power in some way, you get to comment on everything, usually. And and that anger towards like a Nick Jonas is like, but we are always told to stay in our lane. And 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 it's true that like, you know, we're given more or like we're being sought out for our unique perspectives, but then being told where to direct that perspective. And it's like, but I can see I can see everything else. Yeah. <laughs> so I understand that tension, but I, I I agree that it's limiting. It's <laughs> like limiting. you, you want to, you want to embrace people who support you regardless of the fact that you're not like them, that's right. right? That's right. A word you don't hear as much anymore is ally. That's which right. Was, which was a really that's big right. thing, especially in the '90s. That's right. Um, I think because yeah, there's this, which is a lovely word, and there are, you know, obviously a lot of really important people in the gay community who've been allies, a lot of the women. But I think yeah, there's just more of a sense of like I have a voice too. I want to speak for. I want to speak for it's myself now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and this, I mean, this came up recently, um, actually to, to mention it again, the movie Isle of Dogs by Wes Anderson, which is a movie that raises a number of questions about uh, racial representation. It's a movie that is set in Japan, and uh, it's an animated film, and there are a bunch of dogs in the movie, and they all speak English, but the Japanese characters speak Japanese, and it was really important to get, like, for it was really important moment for many Asian American writers to sort of talk about w their complicated feelings about this. Mm -hmm. And that was a moment where, you know, it was one of the rare moments as a critic where I was like, yeah, you know, I, this is sort of a moment where I do need to listen to that. Because uh, I certainly had, I mean, this is not the only time Wes Anderson has ever been weird about race. Um, he's a director that I admire um, very much, love some of his movies. But then there was also the part of me that was like, yeah, I have this job, and and I encourage my website to have other people, mm -hmm. like find other people to write on it as well. But as a film critic, I also have to be able to have an idea about this. Like, mm -hmm. I don't want to have, I don't want to let myself off the hook for this. I think, like, and I think that's important. I think you also do have to say to your writer, your editors, and and editors who are responsible, have to think about things like, you know, making sure that underrepresented voices who can speak to these things get a chance to. But again, then they get kind of tokenistic when that happens sometimes. Yeah. So it's complicated. And as like a black writer. I actually am wary of people saying like you can write in any sort of minority issue because I don't think I don't think that they're all the same. But I do think I have insight there still. It's complicated. 
And the Eliza Hitman thing was really hard for me to see because I think one way that she felt was like, she was getting very irate responses from people. And I think for her, it was just sort of like, it's not as if there are so many women filmmakers working right now that it's like, that it's yeah. like I'm like so, so, so overrepresented. Um, and it's just like a fair, like, a, you know, and so yeah. she was just, you know, it's like I'm coming from a place of, I mean, it depends on how you define Beach Rats, right? Because she's from where the movie is about. Um, and in many ways, many other directors maybe wouldn't be. It's like, it's complicated. And weird that it was so gendered because nobody yeah. attacked Ang Lee for making Brokeback Mountain. Totally. Right. I mean, that was a di was, we were in a different time. That's... We were in a different time. But, I mean, nobody said anything then. Would a more mainstream example of that kind of discourse be something like Detroit? Well, you know, I don't think the problem with Detroit was that the director wasn't black. <laughs> I think the problem with Detroit was that Mark Bull is a journalist who doesn't know how to write people. But it's worth thinking about because, yeah, when you're watching such a hyper-violent movie, you do think about, like, well, who's behind the camera? Who wrote these words? Who came up with these incidents? Who filled in these historical gaps? And why do they do it this way? Detroit has a lot of problems. But, yeah, it, it does come up. It does come up. I have a huge sensitivity about films that are set in South Asia. Uh, documentary and narrative both. Do I think that means that nobody who isn't a South Asian person can do that? No, but I think that you really have to parse why and how you're doing it. And that that's just, you know, my opinion as a person, not just a critic or filmmaker. And that's a, kind of an infuriating answer because it's like, well, no, you can do it if you do it right. And, and like, what does that look like? It's, yeah. a, it's of course very complicated, but uh, yeah, I don't want, I make films about people who don't look like me. Mm. I, I've predominantly made films about um, uh, uh, working class, rural white communities. And I, I think that that's okay. Like, you know, like I feel morally okay about it. Um, may, maybe in part because what I'm describing is the reverse of somebody who's who who is an essentially an oppressor <laughs> getting to make um, a movie about a minority group. But the same applies. It's like, are you being sensitive to this community? Are you doing? Are you know? Have you found in other ways to address your lack of understanding about this place? Um, you talked about it a little bit. Uh, queer filmmakers making non-queer stories, like. Todd Haynes, uh, Deary's making Mudbound recently, and the way those stories, like their lens on it is different, but, and I think has made them much better than that story would be often told um, by a non-queer filmmaker, but how do you, as critics, write about that, like ha getting into the filmmaker's identity? Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, great question. Yeah. I want you to. I'm not going to answer that. <laughs> <laughs> Only because we, because we have talked I have written about it. Outside of this and, and, and coming into this conversation about, like, there's, I, you know, identity and the politics of the film itself, but there's also this idea of, like, queer perspective, not only from the um, critic, but, of course, from the, the filmmaker. And, like, what is that, what is, what even is that? Like, yeah. what is queer perspective? It's really... It's just so hard to comment on without knowing if you are extrapolating. Like, I'm assuming that this thing is better or, or more understanding or, or something. Like, maybe this person can speak to the outsider feelings because we still live in a time where that is a, a predominant um, experience for, for queer people. I just have to think really hard about whether or not, how, about how confident I am in that statement. 
right. to go there. It, or and and it, and if I'm not doing it right, then you are just othering that director yeah. as opposed to writing about them the way you would. I, I think it depends on how relevant it appears to be in the film. Not that it has to be about queer content specifically, but I think Todd Todd Haynes is a good example because people do talk about what his perspective brings, including his identity as a queer person, um, yeah. to, to, to his films. I think that that's been talked about um, in hindsight over the repertoire of work, if not individual films. Yeah, it's, it's hard because as you mentioned, for many artists, that can be sort of crude if you if you're sort of if you kind of bring that in because for them, understandably, in the way that I don't want to just be the black gay critic, mm -hmm. they don't want to just be the whatever whatever director. But it's also it's also true that you know something about like Todd Haynes, for example, not being sexually attracted to women but being very interested in the emotional lives of women mm -hmm. is something that you feel in his movies, whether or not they're about sex or sexuality, you just sort of feel that he takes the broad spectrum of women's lives, men's lives, other lives, like, seriously, mm -hmm. in a way that many other directors, probably because they're straight, I'm just gonna say that, I don't think it's true. <laughs> but yeah, just for the, sake of, for the sake of alienating straight people, because they're straight, um, don't do, but, but it's a fascinating question. Because yeah, as a critic, you don't, you don't want to impose that on them, but I do often just feel even just when choices about how to film bodies, mm -hmm. um, how to film sex, how to eroticize or not people within the frame. On the other hand, there are some quote unquote straight directors who, you know, for example, Zack Snyder, the way that he films Superman and like Henry Cavill's abs mm -hmm. is unique to me in the context <laughs> of in the context of how we treat shirtless superheroes right now. He is like ground level with those abs in a way that other directors aren't. And I'm not saying that makes them queer, but I am saying that as a queer person, I noticed. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's almost like it's, it's a sop to the audience. He's like, to a certain extent, like he knows what his, who his audience is. Yes. Yeah. Subset. And for him, humor. like a male appreciation is probably a different category of like appreciation, but it, it is something that you notice, but then it's just mm -hmm. so hard to sort of psychoanalyze everybody as much as I like to. But then there's also the exact opposite, which is one of the one of the reasons why it's you know it's it's tricky is because um, there have also been the history of gay directors and writers whose stuff is actually extremely conservative. Yeah. So it's I mean it's hard to sub sometimes suss those things out. Like I'm just thinking of um, American Beauty, for example. It's written you know written by an out gay man. It's a film that I find to be extremely mainstream and very, very socially conservative, especially mm -hmm. in its attitudes towards women and gay people. Yeah. Um, so uh, it's it's an interesting thing, because you can't just go on identity alone. Because yeah. some like, people, even if they're even if they're gay or identify as, as queer or gay, they're still part of this society. Mm -hmm. And there are so many entrenched values and, and, and kind of things that are just part of you and part of society that just like pop. Like Joel Schumacher is a, is a gay filmmaker. Mm -hmm. I mean, he's made a couple right. campy Batman movies, but otherwise he makes like very, very hetero, um, you know, um, not particularly interesting yeah. films. And what's his name? Um, Independence Day. Oh yeah, Roland Emmerich. Yeah, great, great example. Very, very queer director, but I wouldn't know that from his movies, really. Um, Except for that Stonewall film, which was bad. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Really bad. Uh, yeah. That's an interesting question. Oh, but in, been, in writing about Mudbound, I, I, for example, like just for me, I, like if I wrote about Pariah, it would be it's so on the surface. Like it's it's about that. It's about a, a young girl's coming out. 
Um, whereas Mudbound, it's just, it's, it's, I just kind of, you know, let her name kind of speak for it, I guess. I think you point out the qualities that you, th so, so you're naming all these qualities that you, that you believe, you know, in this film uh, have been brought to the forefront because of the queer identity of the director, and you just don't say the words because they're gay, you know? Right. And you hope that, like, just <laughs> for, for people who, to whom that is meaningful, and again, also without going into, like, weirdly coded language, like, right. it's, it, it's, it's a tricky path, but you, but yeah, your, your work is to illuminate something about the film, and if to you what you want to illuminate is those qualities that you think were brought to the table because of a queer perspective, then do that. And you don't necessarily have to draw the put a point on it. When you're talking about, I guess Detroit, though it's a bad example, it's just something I think about in criticism that often is sort of lacking is an awareness of all the other roles that are played in film besides a director, mm -hmm. and like the idea of authorship. As you know, we all know it's it's a collaborative art, but but writing often doesn't reflect that. And so, and sort of, I mean, you brought up Henry, uh, whatever his name, Bowles, so the Mark Bowles. Oh, yeah, so Mark like, Bowles, yeah. Right, so the, and James Ivory comes up and Call Me By Your Name, but like, I think for the most part, the identities and perspectives of all the other sort of major craft roles tend to be neglected. And so, mm -hmm. I always get a little stuck there when we're talking, like, who gets to write about something right. and who gets to make something? Mm -hmm. It tends yeah. to be. You know, Catherine Bigelow is not allowed to make Detroit and not like, oh, interesting, Henry Louis Gates wrote the text for the opening. Yeah. Right. That's not an excuse, but what does that mean when we're evaluating like authorship of the mm -hmm. work? Absolutely. Like it's sort of well, that's a whole other area. Question. No, and it, no, but yeah. When we're, we're talking about like the idea of if, fine, if you want to tell a story that isn't your own or, or related to your background, then then do, make sure you do it right. And who you bring to the table and who you collaborate with is a major part of that, I think. But it's also another opportunity token, to tokenize. Yeah, yeah. Totally, it's, totally. it's, it's, yeah. but, it, but does that mean, but it, I get uncomfortable about that, but I also think I'd rather people try and veer into the wrong direction at times than not try to be more inclusive with their crews. And, right. and, and tokenizing doesn't just mean like, great, I found a black person, it's also like, this one black woman has become a very famous cinematographer, and so people go to her over and over instead of like looking more deeply into it. Like the, the, the point is move beyond what you're comfortable with. And that used to just mean people who look like you, and now it's like people who look like you and the, the five people they've vetted. And it's, um, that, that to me is like where the, um, it's really important. It's not just directors who are, who are not representative in sexuality and race and right. gender. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's, it's interesting that, yeah, I mean, we just always got to keep in mind that conservatism, it does not exclude queers. Um, and so it doesn't, for example, I remember when The Imitation Game won Best Screenplay. Mm -hmm. My gaydar was going off over that writer, but I don't think he is actually queer. But I remember thinking that the screenplay for The Imitation Game was weird because it it added this level of, of gay isolation to Alan Turing's story that, from what I've understood, isn't actually a part of his story. Mm -hmm. And it's like, but I could see a queer writer doing that. I could see mm -hmm. them sort of kind of wanting to isolate that as a thing that made him feel different. Mm -hmm. um, but I could also see a straight writer being like, mm -hmm. doing the same thing, mm -hmm. um, because it is a political choice. And it, it is a choice that wounds you an Oscar. Um, and, and, and so what does, that, what does that mean, right? Like, and on the other hand, like, 
can I tell from every part of every one of Ryan Coogler's movies that he primarily collaborates with women? I don't know that I can tell, but that is important to me. Mm-hmm. It is important to me as a choice that he continues to make, yeah. that he only works with women cinematographers and costume designers, and et cetera, et cetera. It's like, and Dee Reese on, on Mudbound was really only working with women, and like, that's really important. Can I tell from the cinematography <laughs> that Mudbound is, you know, it, it has this like historical bullet point now being the first movie with a woman cinematographer nominated for Best Cinematography at the Oscars, but I wasn't thinking woman cinematographer as I was watching because it, like, it didn't, like, that didn't matter to me in the material sense, but it matters to me as a, a like, a political person that, mm-hmm. that that choice is continually made just as a person who wants to see Wonder vs. Cruise. But it's hard to sort of suss out, like, the, the biographical details of people's sexuality. And then, you know, some people just don't know. So so maybe they're not queer yet. Maybe they were queer when they did it, but they just don't know yet. I'm always on that spectrum, too, of just like, mm-hmm. you just don't know yet. You don't know if you're queer yet. You're straight when you did it, but in the future, <laughs> you're going to say, you know, right? I mean... Just one experience away. Right. right. I mean, The Matrix was directed by women, right? And, and that, like, in the moment that it was released, we were not thinking in those terms. Mm-hmm. Um, but now I'm like really happy to be able to say that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, so it's 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 tough. Um, I think we have to wrap it up. But um, one more plug: if you see film comment lying around anywhere, pick one up. We have them all through the festival. We have upstairs some upstairs and upstairs. And made June issues up there. Made June issues up there now too. Thank you very much. Thank you to you guys. This was a really yeah, great conversation. Thank, Thank you. you for being here. Thank you.